if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're actually beginning a new series today called The Reign of Grace, and I'm going to explain that title here in just a minute. But we're going to introduce Romans in a little bit different way than Paul does. And so we're going to look at this passage in Romans 5 that actually tells us or summarizes what the theme of this passage is. It's verses 18 through 21. He says, so then, so in summary, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I have to tell you that, that I, I've spent many years studying this book, and the reason why I did not just jump into a Roman series when I first became your pastor about six or seven years ago is because there were some things in the text, in the letter, that I personally was still really working out. There were a lot of little sticky theological issues there that I just wanted to come to some understanding of. So I've taken probably the last five or six years, I have a little journal, it's a little translation journal. I just write down the sentence in Greek from Romans and then translate it and then just think through it. And I've also done a lot of reading on it. But today, I think I figured out <laughs> what the theme of this book is. Now, there's a different emphasis depending on the commentator. Like, if you read 12 commentaries of the book of Romans, you will read 12 different opinions about what the central theme is here. But I think it's what was just summarized here in Romans chapter 5. I think we're going to discover that this is a gospel presentation that addresses a problem. It addresses the problem. Now, Paul doesn't start the gospel out by addressing the problem. Paul actually starts his letter out by telling you what the solution is. But I want to start with the problem. Thousands of babies and mothers could have been saved. If physicians had only listened to Dutch scientist and doctor Ignaz Semmelweis. There was a problem in the maternity ward in the hospital in Vienna where he was stationed. He was put over all of the doctors and all of the nurses. And he went there and he discovered that the, that the death rate in the maternity wards was really high in the physician ward but it was really low in the midwives' ward. And he thought, that can't be right. Doctors don't know how to deliver babies. And so what he did is he did a, a very rigorous study. He tried to determine through scientific means what the differences wa uh, were between the way the midwives delivered babies and the way the physicians did. And he found there was no difference, no difference except for one. The doctors were also tasked to scientifically study cadavers. They spent their whole day cutting open cadavers and meticulously, scientifically writing down their insights, and they never cleaned their tools. And they, were, they would be called to the maternity ward, and they would rush to the maternity ward and deliver these babies without washing their hands or anything right after touching these dead bodies. And so Dr. Ignaz Simmelweis theorized, he hypothesized that what they were doing was they were translating, uh, transferring little particles of death to the, to the moms and to the babies, and the moms were dying of postpartum fever. So here's what he did. He said, uh, listen, 
From now on, here's what you're going to do. At the end of every workday, you are going to thoroughly, thoroughly wash all of your instruments. They weren't doing this before. And before you touch a woman in the maternity ward, you're going to make sure that you scrub down and you scrub with soap and water, this new thing called soap. And then you can deliver the babies. Eureka. Shazam. Like the, the mortality rate went all the way down. It plummeted down to where the midwives rates were also. Years later, Louis Pasteur discovered the existence of what we now know as germs. He was right. There were little particles of death that they were transmitting to the moms and to the babies. And death reigned until and if, uh, until there was an, an intervening factor, the washing. And the same is true when it comes to the human race. What Paul wants to tell us here in Romans 5 is he wants to say this, death reigned among the human race, un, a race until Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus Christ came, he washed us in the cleansing flow, the cleansing blood of the cross. And this is what this book is about. We begin our series with this sort of chapter in chapter five because this is Paul's summary, going backward and looking forward. Now, if we fail to misdiagnose the problem, if we fail to understand what the heart of the issue is that the gospel addresses, we really will not understand the thrust of this book. We won't understand it. We will miss it. We will grope around in darkness. So Paul essentially has two purposes in writing this letter to the Romans. One is intentionally, doc intentionally doctrinal, and one is intensely practical. So Paul's first purpose is to answer the question, why do people need the gospel of Jesus? Why do people need Jesus' gospel? Romans addresses the problem the of, that the entire human race faces. Now, it's not just a Jew or Gentile problem. It's a problem that every person who has ever been born faces. And it's from Adam to Christ we have been under the reign of sin and death. From Adam to Jesus Christ we have been under the reign of sin, and through sin has come death to all human beings. And Christ inaugurates now, in place of that, the reign of life through grace. The reign of life through grace. Let's look at that summary verse again, verses 20 and 21. He says, the law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now along the way, Paul is going to have a lot to say about a lot of issues. I mean, he's going to cover a range of issues, particularly as they relate to the practicalities of life in the Roman church. He is going to address Jew and Gentile relationships. All of that is true. But the point of this book is to address the problem we all face. It's a problem that Gentiles face. Whether you are Roman or a Greek or a European or an Afghan or an Arab or you're from Africa, you have this problem. It doesn't matter where you're from, you were born into a system that has been condemned, that stands condemned already. And so what Paul wants to do is to take us back to Genesis. What he wants to do is take us back to Genesis and reintroduce us to this challenge, to this desperate condition. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, this is in the Lord God 
the Lord God commanded, right? This word command is the word yetzar in Hebrew, and it means to issue a sovereign decree. He commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. So men had freedom. Men and women had freedom in the garden. They could make choices. He says, but you must not eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will surely, certainly die. And there are three dimensions to human death that were introduced when they fell in chapter 3. You could remember them by three E's. The first one is expire. They expired biologically. They died physically. Now, they didn't just keel over and drop dead as soon as they ate the fruit, did they? No. What happened was, is that began, the moment they disobeyed God, that curse began to take effect. And what happened is they began to grow old. And eventually they will die of the disease of getting old. Getting old is a disease. And so they will expire biologically. They'll die physically. Second E is exile. You better believe that a Jew reading, an ancient Hebrew reading this text would understand their death to be exile from the garden. They are banished from the presence, the manifest presence of the Lord, from the relationship, from the community where God has community. And so they are exiled relationally. 30 is existential. They die spiritually. You see, you are an embodied soul. As an embodied soul, that's what Adam and Eve were, they had a spiritual faculty. They had the ability to commune with God to walk in relationship with him, to know him, to hear his voice, and to speak back to him, and to walk in a unique relationship with him that no other creature and humanity has. And so there's this existential death that they go through. Increasingly, they're no longer able to walk with God and hear his voice and enjoy his presence. And so they die physically. They die relationally. They die spiritually. And Jesus has come to reverse all of that. And what's the last form of death that he defeats? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he says the last enemy to be abolished is death. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about Jesus' resurrection. He's saying, of course you'll be raised. Jesus Christ himself, your Lord, your Savior was raised, and you are in Christ. You're going to be raised bodily from the dead. Listen, God is going to do all of this, and the last enemy he defeats is physical death. You'll raise to life, Paul says. And right now, Jesus imparts life to us to reverse the curses of Genesis. He restores us to holy communion with God. You and I can walk in relationship with God. Once again, spiritually, you can know God. You can walk with him. You can be in relationship with him. He restores us to holy communion with God, but he also restores us to holy community. We're no longer exiled. We're no longer banished. We're brought into the life of God, brought into his family. And the last thing he's going to abolish, the last thing he's going to defeat, his last enemy is death, physical, bodily death. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul puts it this way. He says, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So this is obvious who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does the gospel bring the light to? What does it shed light on? 
The fact that God has now brought us life and immortality in place of our eternal damnation, our eternal death, and this sentence, this curse of death. So Paul's letter to the Romans addresses this universal dilemma. This is the problem in Romans. It's the dominion of death through sin versus the dominion of life through the reign of grace, through the righteousness of God, resulting in life everlasting for anyone who believes. So what's the kingdom? We talk a lot about the kingdom. You go back, you start reading in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Before you get to Matthew chapter 16, you know what you're going to find. You're going to find this phrase a lot. And Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? What is this kingdom that he inaugurates? The kingdom of God is the inbreaking of God's sovereign reign of grace. It is the inbreaking into our realm of death of God's sovereign rule, God's sovereign reign of grace through Christ's righteousness on a cross resulting in our life. This is what the kingdom is. God breaks into a system that is ruled by death and sin and he introduces the reign of his righteousness in grace. So in chapters 1 through 12, there are essentially two summary statements that Paul, use, Paul makes, and he uses the word therefore to draw our attention to his purpose in the book. And if we miss either one of these statements, we only have one lens in the glasses. So if you only have this first one, have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten up in the morning and put your glasses on and you realize, a lens has fallen out and you're walking around for two minutes going, what's wrong with me? I need to go to the doctor, right? You can't see straight. You need both of these lenses and if you're missing either one of them, you can't see Romans straight. The first summary here is because we have been justified by grace through faith, we are saved from sin's penalty. Because we have been justified by God's grace through faith, we are saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty that is due our sins is no longer upon us. And so this summary statement in Romans 5.1 says it all. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a therefore. This is, okay, in light of what I just told you, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 5, verse 1, I've been trying to tell you, you are justified by faith. And so he uses some terms here that we're going to get to know in this gospel, in this letter. Tells us about justification. What is justification? The reason we are not Catholic The reason why we are Protestants and Reformed, we're Reformed Catholics, the reason is because we divided on this issue right here. Because the Reformers said this, justification is not the infusion of God's righteousness to you, right? Justification is the impartation of Jesus' righteous status. Justification is the legal and forensic declaration that you stand in the right in God's court of law. Now, are you condemned? Yes. Is the right definition of justified just as if I'd never sinned? No. That's wrong. You and I are guilty. God doesn't treat you just as if you had never sinned. God actually condemns you. God says the guilty verdict is upon you, but there's someone who steps between you and a holy God. 
And he takes the punishment that is due your sins upon himself on the cross. And he imputes his right standing before God to you. And your sins are laid upon him. You understand? So now you stand, yes, you're condemned, but you're absolved because you're in Christ. You're in his righteousness. So this is a legal forensic declaration that you stand in the right. Whether you feel very righteous or not. And then he said, is this by faith? What does faith mean? We're going to discover in this book what the definition of faith is. Faith, very simply, is receiving trust, is trusting reception. It's coming to God with an open and empty hands to receive from him what you could not possibly give yourself. It's a free gift, and we receive it from him. So we bring nothing to the table. We bring no righteousness. We bring nothing to this deal. It's a free gift of righteousness, and then we're going to learn about reconciliation, peace, this idea of having peace made with God. And he's not just talking here about inner tranquility, no, a sort of blissful feeling that you have, relational harmony. No, he's talking about you and I as the enemies of the cross, as the enemies of God, in open war and sin and hostility toward God, God has sued for terms of peace. He has actually provided a way that you and I can no longer be his enemies and have enmity between us. The second summary of chapters 1 through 12 is, is this, because grace reigns in the life of the believer, we are freed from sin's power over us. Now, if you miss this lens, you don't understand Romans. You can't. This other summary is in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 12. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. He says, therefore, what does this mean for the Christian life? Do not, verse 12, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, other than one summary in Romans chapter 8, he doesn't mention justification again for the rest of the book. So if you think that Romans is only about being justified by faith, declared righteous in God's court by faith, and you try to shoehorn the rest of the book into that subject, you won't be able to do it. There's a whole lot of book left. Ten more chapters. And now he's going to tell us what a justified Christian does, what the effect of grace is in our lives. We're no longer held captive to sin. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that uh, you don't have to worry about sin anymore. Did you have to worry about sin this last week? Did you have to confront sinful desires in your mortal body? You sure did. He refers to the old self. He says, reckon your old self crucified, buried with Christ. The analogy I like to give is, is just imagine for a second that you just purchased a new house. You purchased this new house, and you've paid uh, your down payment, and you've moved in. You're all moved in. Everything is, just imagine that you put everything away. All the pictures are up on the wall. The decorations are there. Your furniture is there. The place is squeaky clean. It's a brand new, beautiful house. You love it. So you take the family out, and you go out to celebrate, have dinner. And you come back, and your house is a total wreck. 
You come back and there's food all over the counters and all over your kitchen island and the fridge door is left open and things have been pulled off the wall and things have been knocked over and broken and your furniture's turned upside down and you're like, did somebody break into our home? And then you hear a sound up in the attic upstairs. And so you let down the ladder and you take your little flashlight up there and sure enough, who do you find upstairs? The previous tenant. He's still living there. And you say, hey man, get out of my house. And he says, no, I'm not getting out of your house. I'm not leaving your house. And you say, you better get out of my house or I'm gonna call the police. I'm gonna go get my gun. You're gonna leave one way or another. You're gonna leave vertically or horizontally, my friend. Now, this is a picture of what the Christian life is like. The old self has been crucified, buried in Christ, but guess what? You and I have to daily get up and decide to crucify him afresh. We have to keep him on the cross where he belongs because he still wants to live there. He still wants to wreak havoc, and if you allow your mortal bodies to be enslaved again to sin, he will wreak havoc in your life. And so this, this book is not just about how you get right with God. This is, book is about how you become transformed by the renewing of your mind in the truth. And if you miss that, you've missed Romans. So the grace that saves you also sanctifies you. The grace that saves you and delivers you also trains you for godliness and righteousness. Paul's second purpose is intensely practical. It's to prepare the Romans for his eventual arrival in order to transition his ministry base there. <laughs> now, God called Paul to take the Gospels into territories where it hadn't been taken before. He hasn't called everyone to do this, but he called Paul to do it, and he's called all of us to support that sort of missions work, that apostolic work. Here's what he says at the end of the book, Romans 15, 19 through 24. He says, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the Gospel of Christ Jesus from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in the present regions. Hear what Paul is saying that he saturated the Mediterranean coast with the gospel such that he has to come to Rome. And what does he want to do? He says, but now I no longer have any work to do in those regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for, for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a little while. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, my goal has been for many years to get to Spain. Like, I want to get all the way to Europe. I want to go to Spain, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer my base of operations, my missions base from Antioch to Rome so that I could reach further and further into Europe. I've heard about these weird, white-faced Europeans. I want to see what they look like. And I want to tell them about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his second reason is intensely personal and practical. He wants to get there, there to further his ministry into unknown territories. Isn't this a miracle? We're reading this 2,000 years later, and here we sit. Here we sit in a place he could not have imagined that would exist on earth. And the gospel is everywhere. Praise God. So Paul's aim was to preach the gospel in Rome where it had already taken hold. And then to push further into new frontiers to bring the gospel to new people who had never heard it before. Everyone needs the gospel, everyone. What is the gospel? 
when we talk about that, what are we talking about? So I just want you to hear me. (laughs) I, I want you to hear me. Listen to me. I want every person in this church to understand what the gospel is. And I fear too often that when we talk about the gospel, we only are talking about me, myself, and I, and my personal Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Like that's, that, that is mostly what I hear when I hear people talk about the gospel. I want you to understand that the gospel is not first and foremostly about you or about me. The gospel is God's royal announcement that his rightful king, the world's rightful king, has been born into the world. That rightful king is the son of God, and he has been born into the world to save sinners. Now, if you miss the first part of that statement, my friend, you have a reductionistic gospel. You're just reducing the gospel to how it applies to me, but you need to understand that God has a bigger story going on. And his story is the good news, the royal announcement that his king has come. Why is this so important and why do we skip it? Why do we only talk about the royal announcement that God's rightful king has come during Christmas? That's the only time we talk about it or sing about it. But that's the most important thing in the gospel that you can understand. Here's why, because God has come to save sinners from their sin. How do the two relate to each other? Every sinner is living in a state of self-rule. Every sinner is living in a state where they say, no, no, God did not say that. Did God really say that? I don't think he did say that. I think I can live according to my own authority, my own life. I can run my life myself. No, no, you can't. Actually, no, you can't. Uh, Just look at your life. Have you done a good job? How's that working out for you, (laughs) right? No. Everyone needs to hear that there is a sovereign God who has sent his royal Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means. It means the anointed king. He has sent his Messiah, his Christ, his son, the son of God and God the son. And he has sent him into the world to declare to you, you are his. Your life is not your own. And he bought you with a price. And he paid the price for you so that he could introduce you to his sovereign, benevolent reign. So that you would not have to grope around in the world in darkness, living according to what you think is right, to what you think is true. But you could come to his word and live under it and flourish by it. So understand that the gospel is the royal announcement, so that's the biblical reason, but there's also a cultural reason. And the cultural reason is because if if Paul were to go to the Roman house next door, let's, let's just say he goes to Rome, or anywhere in Greece, Rome, and he says to the people next door, to wherever he's living or wherever he's staying, hey, I wanna introduce you to the gospel. I've got a gospel for you their first response would be, which gospel? Because we already have a gospel. It's the gospel of Caesar. And the good news, the euangelion, he didn't invent that word, that word already exists in their culture, the euangelion, which is where we get the word evangelism, okay? 
that already exists in their culture. And the Romans see it all the time because it's literally etched in stone signs around their streets. And it's the gospel that Caesar has been born into the world, and from Caesar, Augustus, comes the benevolent reign of Rome. And the benevolent reign of Rome saves you. He's, the, he's your Lord and your Savior. And the reason why it saves you is because it saves you from all the hordes of barbarians and those, those uncivilized countries out there that want to take your country. And then two, it saves you from the internal civil wars within Rome. It's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And now you can know the peace and the salvation of Rome. And Paul says, that's a sham. That's a nonsense message. There is a God of heaven who created the world. He stands in relationship to that world as its sovereign Lord and its sovereign King, and he summons you. He calls you, come and believe in his Son, the Son of God who is also God the Son. And he actually saves you. He saves you from the thing that damns you. He saves you from the thing that is the most detrimental thing in your life, your death your spiritual, relational, and physical death. And he actually does save. And he reigns as king. God is king. He's God's son. And he's come to save us from self-rule, which is sin. And you need to understand that he's born into David's royal line. Why is this important? We're going to unpack this next week. Right there in Romans chapter 1, before he even gets to anything like a problem, he starts right there by saying he's the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why is that important for him to frame it that way? You need to understand that God made a promise to David. It was a land promise and a line promise. The land was for a 20-mile strip of, of land called Israel. The line promise was for an everlasting sonship, an everlasting line that would sit on his throne. When we get to Psalm chapter 2, guess what we find out? It's not just Israel, it's the world. That land promise now becomes the whole earth. And the line promise is a son, a definite son, not just a line of kings, but a king who, will end, who is the end of all kings. And that's what we find out in Psalm chapter two and many other passages. So the reason why you need to know that he's the son of David is because he fulfills that expectation. He is God's royal son. I'm telling you, you forget that and your explanation to someone about the gospel, you haven't even presented the gospel. You haven't. And then he lived a sinless life. Why is this important? Why is it important to explain to people that Jesus lived a sinless life? Why? Because as we read in Romans chapter 5, through one man's disobedience came sin and through sin, death. And now through one man's obedience, one man's sinless life, comes life, and through that life, through that grace, we have eternal life. He qualifies himself. He demonstrates that he is God's lamb. Why did he die on a cross? To defeat the ultimate symbol of our suffering and shame and our sin. And why did he rise from the dead? He rose from the dead victorious over sin, death, and hell, but also to vindicate his claim that he is Savior and he is Lord and he is God's only Son. And he ascended to the throne of heaven. 
It begins with the royal announcement that God's rightful king has come, and the story ends with him acceding to the throne of David, high above all rule, power, and authority. And then now what does he do? Acts. He pours out that which you now see and hear. He pours the Holy Spirit out on all flesh, every human being who believes in that message. Every human being who believes that God sent his son to save the world. And so we come with open and empty hands to receive this free gift of salvation. It's good news. It's the best kind of news because it solves the worst kind of problem. The greatest enemy that you and I face. And the good news is this. God thinks that enemy is his enemy. Let's, let's pray. God, we just thank you this morning for this glorious gospel. We thank you for this powerful message that the sovereign God of the universe who created a world and created human image bearers to live in the world and represent his reign and his rule in perfection to the rest of the world who fell into sin and have now been redeemed and brought back into the kingdom of your marvelous light. God, we thank you that there's no power on earth, there's no power in hell that could have possibly stopped you from doing that. And you have done it. And we sit here 2,000 years later as a testimony that you have done it. And we look at a book like this and we're astonished. We're blown away that this gospel that is just getting started in Rome and Europe has now spread to the rest of the world. Praise God for it. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and we make the good confession today. If you're a believer, my encouragement for you this morning is to embrace the gospel, to embrace the message, the announcement that God's King and Lord and Savior, that he sent into the world as his sinless and spotless lamb, that he's your King and Lord and your Savior. Will you do that this morning? Let me ask you. What is in your life right now where you're still allowing self-rule? Is there a habit? Is there a place in your heart where you're still saying, no, not your word, my word. Not your authority, my authority. Will you just surrender it to God right now? Maybe that's all you can do is just say, God, I surrender this. I give this over to you and I ask you, Lord, that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness and that you would fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit and that I would be able to walk according to your word. Help me, Lord. And if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here this morning, you are living in a state of self-authority, self-rule, under your own word, under your own law. It's called lawlessness. And would you repent this morning and turn to Christ with open and empty hands? You don't bring anything to the table. You don't bring any works. You don't bring any self-worth. You don't bring any value. What you bring is actually an empty life, an empty heart, an empty hands that is being ruled by sin. And will you come to the Lord who loves you? He loves you more than his words could say. That's why Jesus died on the cross because that symbol tells us everything we need to know. 
that God has given his all for us? Would you just repent and turn to him today? Would you embrace by faith the work that he has done for you? God, we know that our salvation is not our gift to you. It's your gift to us. And as believers and new believers, we sing praises to your name. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.